0: You're listening to Startups for Good, where we explore high-growth and high-values ventures. I am your host, Miles Lasseter, three-time founder turned investor. Join us to hear stories of entrepreneurs. Join us to be inspired to be a founder or to work for a startup. Join us to be part of a community that believes startups can be a force for good. Welcome to Startups for Good. In this episode, I speak with Atticus LeBlanc. It's a special one for me because not only am I an investor in his company, PadSplit, but we've known each other since college. Although we were out of touch for a while, when we got back in touch and I learned about this company, I was so excited. Atticus is the CEO and founder of PadSplit, an online marketplace that leverages shared housing as a tool for financial independence. PadSplit is a public benefit corporation that has garnered national acclaim as a solution for housing affordability creating more than 1,600 affordable units in the last three years. Atticus has been an affordable housing developer since 2008 and has presented on housing solutions at MIT, UC Berkeley, and the U.S. Chamber of Commerce Foundation. He is also the co-founder of Strident Construction and Management, Inc. Atticus serves as a co-chair of ULI's Urban Plan Education Initiative co-chaired the Design for Affordability Task Force in 2018 and was a member of Leadership's Atlanta's Class of 2020 and is currently a volunteer with Mad Housers. He graduated from Yale University with a BA in architecture and currently lives with his family in Decatur, Georgia, along with two dogs and lots of chickens. Sounds like he's extremely busy. The company grew over 200% last year, even facing COVID. They have 1,600 units in eight cities that are in the pipeline or live. And they recently announced they raised a $10 million Series A. I think you'll really enjoy this. So please stay tuned. Agus, welcome to Startups for Good. Thank you so much for coming on.
1: Absolutely, Miles. Thank you for
0: having me. Appreciate yeah, it's the opportunity. Great to have you. So to start off, I'd love to know why does housing cost so much? The, the real question there, Miles, is how much
1: time do you have to talk through this? And <laughs> Uh, I, I think it goes back to a, a very basic fundamental economic principle that uh, hopefully we all learn at some point in our lives, and that is uh, supply and demand. And I'd say that's certainly the, uh, the most basic reason why housing costs so much. And I think a lot of folks probably don't realize that uh, in terms of new housing production, we have only just within the last couple months, gotten back to the point of housing production that we were in the year 2000 uh, and uh, of course there was a massive dip post uh, economic crisis in the uh, 2008 to 2011 period so yeah we've just been uh, we've been growing a lot faster than we have been producing housing and it's been happening for a long long time uh, and unfortunately we've got a lot of catching up to do and not that much time to get there
0: well, what about the people that say it's because landlords just charge too much? No question.
1: <laughs> right? And, and you, could, you could certainly say, well, landlords charge too much or uh, what your, you're talking about rental housing or developers are greedy or homeowners are greedy when they're selling their homes. But the, the fact of the matter is the, the lack of supply allows them to drive the prices that, that they can get to the, the highest available bidders. And if we can't create more supply overall, there's just no underlying check on, on any of that. Uh, and so that's, that's really the, as we get to the basic fundamentals, the, the major reason why.
0: And how do you increase supply at pad split?
1: So for us, we take advantage of a couple of trends that have also been happening over the last really 60 plus years where it, And I think if you talk to certainly our parents' generation or our grandparents' generation who likely grew up in thousand square foot, two or three bedroom, one bath homes, even if they had multiple siblings, houses were a lot smaller and houses have almost tripled in size since the 1950s and 60s. And meanwhile, uh, as we all know, people are living longer today, younger populations are living Uh, singly for a longer period of time. And so family sizes have gotten a lot smaller. So you have really big housing stock uh, that exists today and smaller families that uh, there's this huge mismatch between these two trends. And so the way that we create more supply is you redesign those really big homes uh, or in some cases, large apartments to uh, account for these single person or small households uh, to share space. And, and so in doing so, we can take these larger properties and ultimately create smaller households out of them in a way that is very fast and also very cost efficient.
0: So take a single family home and turn the dining room into a bedroom, that kind of thing?
1: Uh, yeah, so it, it goes beyond that. Uh, In that you just look at the number of four and five or even six bedroom homes that exist and how many bedrooms in this country uh, are sitting vacant every night. And the answer is a lot more than there are homeless people in the country uh, and even more than there are people who are severely cost burdened uh, renting in this country. So even if you didn't convert the formal dining room to a bedroom, or the stay or the home office to a bedroom, uh, you would still have enough bedrooms and enough supply nationally to uh, uh, to create sufficient housing stock. It's just not really designed that way, and it's not designed to be shared. But what what we do is by creating a marketplace that allows choices for these folks that are looking for an individual room and are open to sharing uh, is to be able to capture in addition to those empty vacant bedrooms, uh, those other residential spaces like a formal dining room or like a home office uh, that are just as suitable to become bedrooms uh, as any other room. And certainly much more suitable than having to go out and construct a new building uh, or a new apartment. For uh, for those same groups,
0: and how is it different than like a roommate matching service?
1: Uh, I'd say it's pretty significantly different in that we're uh, we take a much more holistic approach, and we also serve a population that is generally unable to qualify for any traditional market rate apartments. Uh, so, if you think about uh, in most jurisdictions, a $1,000 a month apartment would be very affordable and really don't exist in a lot of larger, certainly more expensive metro areas and definitely on the West Coast. But even at $1,000, in order to qualify to rent that apartment, you still need an income of around $40,000 a year. Well, how many people, even in California, earn less than $40,000 a year? And the answer is quite a lot. Uh, So what do those people do? And they don't have the ability to go rent that apartment to share with roommates in the first place, because not a single person can qualify. Uh, Occasionally, you'll see landlords, particularly mom and pops, that will allow multiple people to sign onto a lease and combine their income. But that is generally the exception rather than the rule in a lot of cases. And even if they do allow that, if you're talking about a, a population that doesn't have uh, traditional stability from an income standpoint, they often don't have the, the social network of people that they can rely on to help pay their bills. And so they end up in a very housing insecure situation when that person that they've been sharing an apartment or a house with loses their job. Uh, and then of course their rates go up pretty significantly. So for us, uh, we combine all of those housing costs and make sure that those costs are fixed, even uh, including utilities and um, Wi Fi and furnishings. And so, all of those expenses that would otherwise go into housing costs and bundling those into one fixed cost that is then billed on a weekly basis, which is much easier to remember, uh, or even on a payday basis. So, if they get paid every second Tuesday, uh, it's a lot easier for folks to budget around, whereas the traditional market says, uh, and that traditional landlord says, okay, I want my rent on the first of the month. And well, what day of the week is June 1st or July 1st? And no one ever keeps that day of the week top of mind. Uh, and so it's much harder to, harder to budget around, particularly for folks that we already know don't have savings, they don't have a buffer, and they're already living paycheck to paycheck.
0: So for a pad split member... How do you help them feel safe living with strangers?
1: Yeah, so for us, we do full underwriting on on every member that comes in. So we do a full background check on each member that comes in, and then we also do identity verification. And we're doing income verification as well to make sure that they they have a stable source of income. And they each have a private room. Uh, They have the ability to lock their door and uh, close up their stuff uh, as necessary. And it's actually it's it's a pretty interesting social experiment, and that one thing that we've learned is I would argue that tends to be a lot safer um, for for two reasons. One, the biggest risk for individuals, particularly in multifamily housing, has nothing to do with crime. It has to do with fire, uh, and so from a fire protection standpoint, uh, it is much better to have multiple people in a home, particularly when we are requiring as part of our brand standards that we have smoke detectors inside each bedroom as opposed to just outside. We have automatic fire suppression over the stoves, uh, which is the most common source of of fires. Then there's things like, no space heaters in the rooms, and we don't allow smoking in the rooms, and, and those types of things. And uh, from a social experiment standpoint, though, it's it's a when you have multiple people who are unfamiliar with each other, they tend to hold each other accountable much more so than they would in a familial group uh, or one where they they feel comfortable enough that uh, that they're not going to. Uh, report on bad actors. And if you have six people living in a home and one person is a bad actor, it's incredibly likely, and we've seen this play out in the past, where uh, the other five generally force some sort of social norms onto that person, uh, or they can isolate that person. And in our case, they can rate and review the individual and bring that to our attention, and and we can help resolve some of those conflicts as they arise.
0: Now, you have some other non-real estate related benefits for members as well. I think telemedicine, for example, is that sure. right?
1: Yeah, we. So how does that work? Yeah, we do. Uh, yeah, we uh, we provide telemedicine uh, access for all of our members. We know that a lot of our folks do not have access to health insurance, uh, whether because they don't have traditional employment options that that include health insurance, or they're just young entrepreneurs. And unfortunately, when those um, medical emergencies become an issue, there's not any sort of buffer for them to uh, maintain their housing stability. And so one of the things that we've done is added this telemedicine feature where any member of PADSplit has access to apply for 24-7 telemedicine coverage for and reach a doctor who can write a prescription. And that's already included in their, in their membership. Uh, because we think that e- even if it only is helpful for a handful of people over time, uh, the cost savings and, and the stability that you've created for those individuals uh, far outweighs the cost.
0: So it's preventative medicine by offering telemedicine or like preventative collections uh, on on lost revenue for the company as well as healthier tenants. It's a big win, win, win. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So we've been talking about the member side of it. What's in it for the owner? Landlords are reasonably
1: simple. uh, And most of our customers are landlords, real estate investors of varying degrees, whether it is a single stay at home mom who's looking for an alternative source of income, or just a real estate investor network uh, of folks who, who do this part-time on the side or full-time professionals. But the, the basic premise for any housing provider is, is very simple in that they are interested in real estate as an investment asset, as an investable asset, and uh, they want to return. And so for us, what, what we can capitalize on because of that mismatch between the population that needs housing and the housing stock that exists is to say okay well we can actually earn you significantly more income and make a home more profitable uh, by also making it more affordable simultaneously and i understand that that may seem like an oxymoron so i'll kind of walk you through it the the gist is that in a market rate rental scenario the first bedroom is always the most valuable and so if you look at the cost of a one-bedroom apartment, wherever you happen to be, that one-bedroom or studio is market value. But a two-bedroom unit or, is almost never worth two one-bedroom units. And a three-bedroom unit is certainly not worth three one-bedroom units. And so you have these diminishing returns over time where in, when you get to four or five or six bedrooms, uh, those extra bedrooms are essentially worthless. And so what that allows us to do from a pricing standpoint is to say, all right, well, we want to make that first bedroom more affordable because we know that's a bigger portion of the population that is in most need right now. And so we'll price that first bedroom at 60 or 70%, uh, even all inclusive of utilities and furnishings, uh, of that one bedroom non inclusive market rate cost. And so it makes it much more affordable. But then when you add that same 60 to 70% uh, incremental, rent onto those additional bedrooms, you reach this tipping point where over around four bedrooms in a single family setting, and even as few as going from two to three in a multifamily setting, you are actually better off renting more affordably by the room than you would be renting the entire property on its own.
0: Gotcha. So how do the incentives align for the owner with your mission of creating more affordable housing? How does that work out?
1: Yeah, I mean, we describe it as we make affordable housing possible by also making it profitable. And my thesis early on when I started this company was that I had seen uh, in Atlanta uh, neighborhoods that had changed dramatically over a very short period of time, not from any major investment or corporate relocation or, or large development, but just through tens or hundreds, or in some cases, thousands of small real estate entrepreneurs who were, were doing one house renovation at a time. But when you put all of those together in one individual neighborhood, that neighborhood changed dramatically. Now, of course, there were some negative impacts of those changes, and namely, gentrification and displacement of the affordable population in a lot of those neighborhoods. And so the way that that I looked at this problem was to say, well, if we're trying to solve the affordable housing crisis, wouldn't it be more effective to take those groups of people and those extremely powerful sources of investment and uh, entrepreneurship and, and just people that were motivated to financially empower themselves and their families and to demonstrate how they could both make a very good investment and improve their communities and to create affordable housing, because that ultimately would, I think, be a much more powerful incentive than the way we had tr- we had traditionally created affordable housing. And so if you could align incentives between the people who wanted to go out there and improve the bottom line uh, with the people who needed more affordable housing options, then that could be a really powerful force that could ultimately change communities and create Far more affordable housing, much more quickly uh, than any other tool that we've used previously to create affordability.
0: So, harnessing the power of the market to deliver exactly. this affordable housing, which seems really great. We've talked about it, you know, what's in it for members and investors, you know, the owners of the property makes a lot of sense. But when I was first talking to you about it, however many years ago, one of my big questions was, well, what do the neighbors think or or what is the regulatory environment sure is? so i'm curious what your experience has been with those that, that say not in my backyard
1: yeah uh, I, I think there's probably a couple issues to unpack here uh the the first is that as long as a house is well run and well operated there really are not issues with neighbors if if we have a host who is ensuring that the grass is cut the house is maintained and that there aren't people parking all over the grass, then there really aren't any significant issues. There's a difference between what actually happens on the ground versus someone's fear of what may happen. Uh, And it's harder to control uh, what those fears and anticipations may be of the the boogeyman in the closet. In reality, those, those exist at a much lower rate than anyone would ever anticipate. And I mean, listen, humans have been sharing space since we were cavemen. And uh, I mean, even when you go back 100 years in this country, this was pretty common practice in every major city in in the U.S. And if you look at a lot of homes that were built in the the teens and 20s, there's often even an extra door that goes to uh, a a dedicated bedroom that was for boarders. So it's not uh, it's not something that really became anathema until the the suburbanization in the, the late fifties and and sixties where we just kind of thought oh well people aren't designed to to share housing anymore. But that's really just a that's an unproven fear. And if you look at whether it is any data source on property values or neighborhood livability, those just haven't really come to fruition. The other thing to unpack, though, is, is really just this history of regulations in the country and pretty well documented that a, a big part of the reason why zoning came about and a lot of these exclusionary regulations were put in place uh, were to discriminate specifically based on race uh, very early on, and, and were only phased out in the civil rights era, by mm-hmm. and large. Now, today, of course, there are, hopefully, no existing regulations that actively discriminate based on race, but they clearly dis- discriminate based on income. When you look at something like a neighborhood of five-bedroom homes, well, if the only way to move into that neighborhood is to either rent or purchase an entire five-bedroom home by yourself and there is a regulation that says uh, we do not allow any unrelated people to share a home, then you have, by by fact and by law, uh, restricted against incomes in that community. And of course, we, we can all draw a very hard line between the, the impacts on economic equality today uh, with those original regulations around racial inequality and racial discrimination. Uh, and so if you're going to discriminate based on income, you are de facto discriminating based on race. And so the, the, the premise that we operate under is pretty simple when we are working with municipalities it is, number one, do you believe the people that serve your communities, your teachers, your firefighters, your police officers, the people who cut your hair and serve your coffee and uh, deliver your goods or drive your uh, your taxis or ride shares, do they deserve an opportunity to live in your community? And hopefully the answer for everyone in this country is yes, they do. Uh, and if that is true, then what are you willing to do about it? And... And that's usually a pretty good starting point for us, but it is clearly within their economic incentives to want to make sure that they have housing for their workforce uh, within a reasonable distance of those employment centers for lots of reasons, whether that is economic impact overall and job growth, uh, whether it is for decreasing traffic or improving environmental outcomes. Uh, lots of those different things. And, and just looking at it as a, an efficient use of our resources overall in thinking, well, uh, would I rather subsidize with taxpayer dollars a, an individual for a 700 square foot one bedroom apartment and have to build those apartments to the tune of 200 to $700,000 upfront, and then subsidize that ongoing operating cost over time? Or should I look at revising some of our existing regulations that prevent people from sharing homes? And to me, it's not really a choice if you're looking at how you are being a a steward of of resources.
0: Yeah, if anything, I think you've understated it. I mean, you're more of an expert than I am, but reading that book, Color of Law, a couple years ago, and even looking at some of the zoning rules against rooming houses, I mean, they really do seem... Racists on oh, yeah. the face. And, and so oh, yeah. when you know about the history, it's like, why do we have these things anymore?
1: Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, and some of them are, are really just pretty blatant, even to this day. I've seen many definitions of family that, that make an exception for domestic servants. And there, there's no limit on the number of domestic servants that can that can live in your family. But as soon as you get above two or three adults, then, then you're excluded. So they don't exactly hide particularly well the, uh, the underlying idea and, uh, and discrimination.
0: Don't just listen, get engaged. I host a giving circle to support startup tech nonprofits. What's a startup tech nonprofit, you ask? A startup is an organization seeking to grow that is new. Tech, meaning using software to scale with lower to zero marginal cost, And nonprofit, meaning organized as a public charity. So support innovation by seeding nonprofits leveraging technology to scale. Go to startupsforgood.com and click on Giving Circle. Now, you were previously a real estate developer and investor, right? Uh, I I
1: would say I still am. I mean, I've I've been an investor now, I guess, for 16 years. And even as an entrepreneur, I'd say I'm still an investor. I just happen to be investing a lot more in people than in projects right now.
0: Yeah. So I'm wondering what's been the difference in moving more towards a tech-oriented startup rather than traditional real estate?
1: You know, I, I think for me, uh, I've just—I've never really been able to sit still, and uh, it's been a tremendous learning opportunity for me, and, and one that I found fulfilling. The the biggest thing that that changed for me, I had—I'd started in the affordable housing space in the in the late 2000s, really probably 2008, and had been involved with a number of traditional affordable housing subsidy programs. And I had just grown really frustrated with how inefficient and slow they were. And I felt really strongly that we could provide a much faster, much more effective solution. And I knew, even in those early years, how large the gap was for the amount of affordable housing that had to be created. And instead of creating net new housing for affordable housing every year, our, our city here in Atlanta was, was losing units every year and still still is losing units. And so that's really when I became in 2016 intrigued by using technology in a marketplace to solve this issue in the same way that I had seen Airbnb blow up and Uber expand all over the place and Lyft and, and all these other marketplaces that had Effectively empowered lots of different stakeholders to run their own businesses or make their own personal decisions, but really just set up the framework for them to operate and and align those incentives. And even though I didn't know anything about technology in late 2016, I became convinced that this world had to exist, that this product had to exist to align these incentives if we were really going to effectively solve this problem. And I was just interested in, in solving the problem and ultimately creating a legacy for good in the world, uh, that would uh, sustain well beyond my lifetime. And that's, uh, that's how I ended up here. And it's, it's been a wild ride, but, uh, but certainly a journey of lots of lots of learning.
0: When you think about that learning, what, what would you recommend to other founders who are getting into tech startup without a tech background?
1: Uh, jump in. That's it. Yeah. I mean, uh, Certainly, I mean, there, there is so much great content out there. I mean, even that's just developed over the last couple of years. When, when I got interested in, and I, I really started PadSplit in the, the spring of 2017 and decided, okay, I need to go learn something about technology. I found a, a local incubator is a strong word, but uh, a tech-friendly co-working community and just started pitching and, and talking to people about, hey, how can, uh, how can I get this off the ground and who can help? Uh, and it was, it was basic networking one-on-one, but uh, since then it's, listen, you can find a, a YouTube video or uh, a medium blog or podcast on absolutely everything right now. And what was really incredible for me was joining the Techstars network and in, in 2018, meeting some of my founding team and a, and a CTO and just ultimately being able to build around me with some amazing people who were motivated by the mission uh, and excited to, uh, excited to do something good in the world that, that could be really, really impactful and, and grow far beyond ourselves. So I think there's lots of ways to do it, but, uh, but just get started and ultimately ask yourself the question of, if you uh, if you look back at your life five years from now, will you be better off having having taken the plunge or not? And if you are confident enough in in yourself to do that, then I would highly encourage anybody to do so. It doesn't mean it's it's not scary or painful or really really difficult at every every turn and require a ton of luck. But but that's that's generally my my advice to anyone who's thinking about it.
0: Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned the setbacks and challenges. I think of you as someone who has a core value of perseverance. Is that right? Uh,
1: I think I think anybody in the entrepreneurial space has to, but but yeah, I mean, listen, it's uh, there's no question for me that it's it's been it's been a lot easier for me to be in a position to run this company because I had uh, I've been an entrepreneur now for sixteen years. But early on, it was really, really painful. And of course I was in the, in the housing space at the time and was there for the financial collapse and lost virtually all of my income in 2007 right after my first son had been born. And the, the, only, the only recommendation I can give and the only thing that's really kind of helped me is just this idea of you just get up and you keep walking and, and you just put one foot in front of the other and you've got really high highs and really low lows. But if, if you keep on walking, you'll, you'll make it through. I'm pretty sure there's a country song about that somewhere about, uh, uh <laughs> going, going through hell, keep on going or something. But, uh, but yeah, I, I don't know if there's any, any secret to it. You just, you keep moving forward and uh, don't look back.
0: Yeah. You, you, uh, seem to know a lot of songs, um, in your weekly updates <laughs> that you send out, you'll often weave in a lot of pop cultural references. I've really been impressed by those weekly updates.
1: Well, I appreciate it, Miles. Yeah. The, uh, again, I can't, I can't underestimate the, uh, or underemphasize the, the power of the internet. You can find, you can find anything about, uh, uh music or lyrics or, uh, pop culture. Uh, I'm I'm hardly a, a pop culture geek, but yeah, when when you've committed to writing an update every week on your comp- company, and I think that list of updates now spans probably 760 pages or so, uh, you, uh, you you tend to uh, you tend to get pretty deep with some of those and and find some more obscure references.
0: Yeah, I think that this is something. I don't know if you're unique, but but definitely a standout in companies I've seen in terms of this regular updating of investors and advisors in a really detailed and transparent way that I want to commend you on. And, and I think that others could learn from it.
1: I appreciate it. Yeah. It's funny. I, I mentioned tech stars earlier. I was doing a little talk for a, a tech stars group of alumni uh, a couple of weeks ago and, One of the guys from from National, Greg Cochran, said that he didn't know of any other alumni that was still doing weekly updates. So I don't know if that's necessarily good or bad, but yeah, it's been over two and a half years now and, and we've kept it up. It's it's as much for us as it is for everybody else. And I think it's it's helpful as a as a form of therapy and just to to clear your thoughts as much as it is to to update everyone else along the journey. But we have a lot of stakeholders that are in that in that list. And and folks just want to keep up and, and understand what's going on and all of the trials and successes and really they want to be able to help. And and it's helped us maintain engagement among uh, a network of stakeholders, even investors who didn't ever invest, that still uh, contribute their their knowledge or networks, has been uh, it's been inspiring uh, for me. And and yeah, I, I don't I don't see how I could stop at this point. But but yeah, it's it's good. And and listen, uh, more often than not, we look forward to writing them.
0: It seems like it also also offers a little bit of accountability every week and a operational rhythm. Because you're sharing it with employees as well, right?
1: Oh yeah, yeah, no doubt, uh, no doubt, and that uh, you know I think TechStars in the in the program they get you into this cadence of weekly updates and reporting your KPIs uh, for that exact reason, and the the internal reporting is every bit as important, if not more so than than the external reporting. And really, it's an opportunity for me as a CEO, particularly because we're now in a completely remote environment, but even when we weren't, to just share how I am feeling about, uh, about what's going on and what, uh, what themes I'm, I'm particularly focused on for any given week or, or several weeks and, and really refocus the rest of the company around those themes if necessary. But, uh, but as you said, really to, to maintain accountability as well.
0: Now, I know those emails aren't public, but if you're willing to share any numbers about the growth of PadSplit, whether that's dollars raised or uh, members or employees, I think the audience would be interested in hearing that.
1: Yeah, well, we'll we'll sneak peek for tonight's update. We just crossed 1,600 units today. So so excited about that. Uh, Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, We we have now expanded, have a have a pipeline into we're not active, but we have a pipeline into eight markets with units under development. So excited about that. Yeah. I mean, listen, uh, COVID, I think, was was really, really difficult for us and and this category for a lot of reasons. And and a number of other people that are in this uh, co-living or shared housing space did not survive. Uh, and so we're, we're fortunate that not only did we survive, but we grew almost 200% last year. And uh, we are at a point now where we're, we're filling, uh, we're, we're booking vacant rooms, even in Atlanta in just a couple hours, which is, uh, which is really pretty amazing. And, and that's, that's come down from when we started, we were probably at around three weeks to, uh, to book a room when it got listed. And, and now to, to be able to do that in a couple hours and get houses filled completely with multiple people at full occupancy in in ten days or less uh, is is really pretty amazing and something that I'm I'm really proud of.
0: Yeah, that is quick turnaround and nice growth. Why do you think it is that you did better in COVID than others?
1: It's a, it's a tough question. I mean, we're so different. Uh, we are really the only business that is focused on this affordable population that I know of. Uh, so I, I I can't discount that. I'm sure it has a a huge a huge part in it in that as you look at other uh, more traditional co-living companies they're generally targeting young professionals who are are making good income but still have limited housing options and they're uh, they're offering a set of amenities or a premium geographic location whereas for us it's it's more meat and potatoes in that the the folks that that we're working with our median income is $22,000 a year and a lot of these folks don't have the ability to certainly afford other housing, but even afford a car. And they are simply locked out of any traditional housing option anywhere. And if you look at what those um, uh, what kind of rent they can afford, it's, it's around 600 to 700 bucks. And And for us, we're 650 all inclusive. So it's just far and away the best option. Whereas if they were going to go look at an extended stay motel in a in a rough part of town, uh, they're paying easily twice that or more. So uh, the the reality is there's just this in back to your first question, supply and demand. Uh, demand is is absolutely off the charts, and I think uh, unfortunately it's it's just largely an invisible population that that people don't really understand. It's certainly difficult to serve in in many cases, but uh, we we pride ourselves on operating efficiently and. Our guiding principles are, are care, show it, prove it. And we've just kind of doubled down and and really gone deep into this market and this segment, uh, as opposed to maybe being more aggressive early on about expanding into new markets or or new verticals. But I, I think it's it's listen, it's paid off and uh, we're we're incredibly grateful.
0: Care, show, prove it. I love it. Yep. I love that. Is that connected at all with your choice to become a Public benefit corp?
1: Not not directly connected. I think the the public benefit corp was first. But yeah, we wanted to really just put our put our money where our mouth was, so to speak. And we chartered as a public benefits corp when we we raised our first round of, of funding, as much as anything to signal to investors who are the types of investors that we want and and what should they expect from us. And so as part of that charter, we have to provide affordable housing for people who are earning less than 80% of the 80, of the area median income. And it was really important for me. I mean, as I mentioned, when I founded the company, it was because I wanted to create a legacy for good in the world. And I'm always conscious of, okay, what happens if I get hit by a bus? And either this is a a consequential or inconsequential inco- company, but if, if the next person comes along, what what vision and what policies and procedures and protocols have I put in place to ensure that the vision continues to be realized. And, and so that was, that was one that was pretty basic and, and easy for me to get in there. But yeah, it, it, it certainly speaks to the, the culture that, that we're trying to build. Uh, and it's the, with regard to care show approved. it's just something that's pretty easy for, for all of us to think about when we are operating and when we're talking to uh, stakeholders on any side. That this is our expectation of our members who are living with us, of our hosts who are operating these properties, that that we expect everyone to care. Uh, We expect them to show it, and and then we expect them to prove it.
0: So in a public benefit corp situation baked in, not only is that mission, but also requirement to report to shareholders about how you're doing along that mission. And I'm thinking that that aligns so perfectly with the care show prove it. It, It's almost like uh, it's... It's a parallel that you meant, but you're saying it happened by yeah. accident. I love it. yeah,
1: yeah I mean, I, I can't quite say by accident. i'm I'm a big fan of uh, charting out the vision first and just understanding what your North Star is, where you want to go. And if the only thing that you do for your organization is is align on that, I'm sure that everyone in the organization does, uh, lots of those happy coincidences happen, right? Uh, because it just so it just so happens that everyone is pointed in the same direction. Uh, and so even if they're making decisions independently, generally they're they're much more likely to, uh, to align with one another.
0: So you said part of the reason for choosing that corporate form was to signal to investors what kind of company this is. How has it impacted your fundraising?
1: Hard to say, I mean, if, if anyone has turned us down and listen, lots of people have turned us down. If anyone has turned us down because of that specifically, I'm not acutely aware. I have certainly heard some investors who were, who were maybe just a little more compassionately direct than others to say they try not to mix their, their investments and their philanthropy. I'd say that is becoming rarer and rarer uh, as a mentality. And certainly, I, I think there's, there's a trend towards more social responsibility from investors in every segment. Uh, but yeah, I guess I don't, I don't really know. Uh, I know that the investors that we do have, I'm, I'm thankful for and that they are all mission aligned because if they weren't, they, they wouldn't be here. But yeah, it's hard for me to say that if it's made our life more difficult because we, we are mission driven than, uh, than if we weren't and we were just trying to create a really, uh, a really big business.
0: I think it's interesting you reference this concept of separating philanthropy and investing. I think it is a traditional view. I've heard Ross Baird, the founder of Village Capital, reference it as two-pocket yeah. investing or two-pocket, you know, money strategy. Like I have my giving pocket and I have my investing pocket, and they're totally yeah. separate. And I think that more and more people are recognizing you can blend, you can have a continuum, you can have different approaches. It's not as if you know you want to cause all the negative externalities out of your investing pocket and then like try to fix them out of your philanthropy pocket, you, you may be able to achieve better returns in some cases by having founders and teams that are mission driven, that are focused on big problems in society, that there are like massive benefits to solving. If you can figure out how to harness the market, like you've done.
1: Yeah. Well, and, and listen, I mean, it's, It's a huge advantage in many cases as well, but as as I pitched to investors early on for our seed round and continue to do, I really, really do not think that you can be in this business for the population that we're serving and not be mission-driven. If you aren't, you're going to fail because a lot of the problems that you just have to face are really, really complex human issues. And- It's much easier. If the only thing you're trying to do is create a a large, successful business, then you go focus on the young professionals who uh, don't have any troubled backgrounds, don't have any sort or nearly the same degree of mental health issues or uh, just instability overall, because there are a lot of societal problems to, to unpack there, whether you're talking about education or housing or income or family structure or, or any of these different things. And the, the amount of trauma that we see among a, a lower income population is certainly much higher than it is for, for a higher income group. But if you're going to solve those problems well, you have to care. And if you don't care, you're not going to solve the problem. You're not going to address your customers' needs and you're going to fail. Uh, and it's not going to be a good product overall. And so I really, for, for this particular business, at least, I don't think that you can differentiate between the two.
0: Yeah, that's great advice and strong motivation for you. Is there a way that people can follow you or Pat Split online?
1: Sure. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're certainly active on, on Twitter and Facebook and, and all of those. I, I do write a fair amount mostly about housing policy for for forbes and if if you want to reach out feel free to uh, feel free to contact me and uh yeah we'll, we, we can put you on the weekly update list
0: <laughs> what an invitation it's a it's a special email list to be on well thank you so much for coming on the show glad that we got to talk about what we did i'm sure we could go on for hours
1: definitely well uh well listen always a pleasure miles and love to catch up any opportunity we uh we can obviously we've known each other for a long, long time. So uh, uh, happy to uh, have this have this circle reconnect.
0: All right, thank you so much.
1: Thanks, Miles. See ya.
0: If you liked what you heard today on the podcast, be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast player, and please give us a rating and review. The reviews help others find us. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram and you can follow me on LinkedIn. Be sure to visit our website, startupsforgood.com. That's startupsforgood, all run together, no spaces, dot com. If you were inspired today and wanna join our online community or our giving circle, please do so on our website.